from Los Angeles. This is the Adult Swim Podcast, Rick and Morty Companion Edition. I'm Matt Harrigan. We're talking about Rick and Morty number 403, One Crew Over the Cuckoo's Morty. If you haven't watched this episode yet, you might want to watch it first. You might not. I chatted with some folks who made this episode, including Brian Newton, who directed it, and Katie Delaney, who wrote it. We'll also hear from character designer Elisa Phillips, color designer Corey Brooks, supervising director Wes Archer, background designer Tommy Scott, and music composer Ryan Elder. Here we go with Rick and Morty number 403, One Crew Over the Cuckoo's Morty. Hi, I'm uh, Brian Newton. I'm one of the episode directors for Rick and Morty Season 4. What's your history with the show? Uh, so I came on to the show on the pilot episode. I was a storyboard artist and assistant director. Uh, Justin needed help to actually, you know, produce an animated show, and he and I worked together briefly on a community animation with Harmon. Uh, so when I came on the show, uh, basically we had a script and almost like a rough storyboard, and my uh, first contribution to the show was when uh, Rick shows up and helps Morty with his uh, his bully problem, named by Frank. Uh, that was like one of the first sequences I did. Uh, ever since then, I've been... Uh, on the show, directing eight episodes. Is that the most of any director? Yes. I'm the longest serving. What is it about you that makes you the, the most longest serving director, do you think? I can tolerate a lot of bullshit. <laughs> like what? Oh, so I've been on since the beginning. Like I knew Justin before going into it. Yeah. So I And I've been, even at that point, I had like 10 years animation experience. What's your history? Uh, so I, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, I went to school at Otis College of Art and uh, immediately thereafter got to start working in animation in 2004. Uh, but like Rick and Morty was the first time I actually got to direct because I'd been storyboarding before then. So when season one got picked up, Justin gave me the opportunity to direct and my first episode was the Meeseek episode. The guy, I only got lucky enough to be bored on that episode, but my favorite episode that season was the Rick Steam Minutes. Uh, we got to put a lot of fun into that one because uh, the we've talked about in the behind the scenes, but... For that episode, all we had was audio track from the different bits. And as board artists, we got to kind of design and construct kind of the concepts we were listening to. And uh, that one gave us the most creative freedom as far as board artists for the show is concerned. Uh, and I've been asked back every season for two, three, and four. So, so you can tolerate a lot of bullshit. Mm -hmm. What kind of bullshit comes down for a director? So... <laughs> this one, this one's fun. Season one, <laughs> uh, the everyone remembers like the potion episode, Rick's uh, Rick Potion number nine, right? Uh, that was, I think, originally the third in our production, but because this, the design was so heavy on that episode, like I think there were literally like two hundred new characters and assets because every time the characters literally transformed into mantises and then transformed into the Cronenberg monsters, those are new designs which have to be built. On average, even on a big show, even something akin to The Simpsons, you're only dealing with like new characters periodically and only like 15, 20. Rick and Morty's pushing hundreds for like new episodes. So because of like the, the size of an episode like that, uh, things get pushed way later or things are just more challenging than like uh, what uh, production may have realized. So it gets a little hairy uh, for our production. So if you're, if anyone's complaining about oh, why is the show taking so long to produce? Well, part of that is, you know, you, you do an episode where there's a giant convention of aliens and each new alien's unique and some aren't unique and you got to do massive crowds and then they get 
controlled by a hive uh a hive bot and takes control of them and then they break down that convention <laughs> and then destroy a whole new planet filled with all new unique aliens. Let's talk about this episode. Walk me through the evolution of I guess we're calling it the heist. Heist? One floor of the cuckoo's Morty. Right. First of all, how does it how does that name come by? I have no clue. <laughs> so so real real talk is that we on the script will get an episode. For example, the Tiny Rick episode, which was Big Trouble and Little Sanchez, was just called Tiny Rick. And I don't even know what the full title is going to be until like after they're animated and once they get close to the air. So we initially got the pitch for this was uh, it's Dan's kind of griping about heist movies. Uh, I, I think there was a little while ago on his, on his podcast, Harmontown, him griping about the Now You See Me movies. Uh, how like they're stupid. <laughs> I, I've I've heard the rant once. So is is Harmontown a, a a genesis for a lot of Rick and Morty? Yes, content. I mean, even like one of the first episodes I worked on, which was a uh, lawnmower dog. How like Inception stupid? No one should like this movie. Was basically the genesis for that episode. Uh, so this one is about like heist movies, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Dan wanted to like basically deconstruct and shit on heist movies. So how much did you study the these these reference these movies that you reference? Yeah, usually if I know the references pretty well, I'll just board straight into it cuz like it's like second nature. Like it's like, hey, reference Star Wars, like yeah, I can I can do Star Wars. But uh for this I I did rewatch like uh, the first Ocean's 11 movie. Uh and I wanted to see Ocean's 8, but I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, and I've never seen the Now You See Me movies, but when they were talking about like doing that uh, Sodenberg style with like the vignettes of different scenes going on and the panels in between, it's like, okay, I already know that kind of vignette style. And rewatching those movies to see kind of like techniques they do on how, when they cut and when they edit and how they have different interlay together. For example, you'll usually have a background that's like, Two backgrounds that are similar, and then you do a close a close in of like a specific action while there's like a different action on top of it. So if like a character is walking through the scene and they pick up like a a, a specific item from a table, and it's like a quick snatch that if you didn't cut in, you completely miss. You'd have that going on on one panel, and then on the second panel that show up, you have the quick cut in and maybe like freeze on that while your your eyes are supposed to dart back to either the previous panel or a third new panel of the action continuing of what that item was going to be used for. It's kind of like all the techniques you usually use on um, boarding a sequence or detailing a sequence, like all the shots, 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 are now played on top of each other instead of like in a a, a linear sequence. So th- is this a hard one to make? Is this one of the... Yeah. Where does this stack up? Every season's been hard, <laughs> but this <laughs> one's been specifically hard. Yes, Why? this is a, a more challenging one. Mainly on the the background and uh, boarding and because of the nature of all these aliens and all these different races running around, like collecting stuff when they get mind controlled by the Heistertron robot, that sequence is particularly difficult. And uh, detailing a lot of these vignettes as they're going through was a a bit of a challenge to do in Storybook Pro. I'm sure it was even more challenging for the animators. Uh, This episode specifically, I was told uh, by production, has over 900 assets. And assets include backgrounds, characters, and uh, props. What do they average? Oh, average on a normal show, not a Rick and Morty show. Yeah, how about would a... be maybe about 12. On Rick and Morty, like I said earlier, sometimes we push into the 200, but even 900 is 
ridiculous. It's will they be? Will they be reused, repurposed? <laughs> Not on this show. You would think. <laughs> Even on this one episode, I think we only reuse. The only reuse I can definitely remember is the garage for when uh, Morty, uh, Rick is building the Heistatron and they're laying out their plans. And there's one shot of a grocery store, which I think was used in Mind Blowers, Morty's Mind Blowers, or another episode from season three. Uh, it's at the end when, uh, I think it's Hephaestus, goes to, when they're doing a random action, he goes on top of a grocery store. The exterior was reused. Everything else in this episode is completely new. Think, what are some things maybe that you're proud of, some of these scenes? I think one of my favorite bits from this episode is the uh, is the Heistatron robot when he's doing his little heist on that alien world to steal the planet's core. Uh, that That's just funny to me. I tried to keep with the, I think uh, Eugene, uh, the board, board artist, was the one who helped me on this one. Uh, he did this sequence. The scale of Heistertron versus this planet that he's heisting where the size of the pizza and like the size of listening devices. I think I, each time I had, I make sure to scale it up per like something that's fairly like we'd understand. So if I remember the listening device might be the size of Los Angeles while the pizza might be the size of Texas. And I try to keep everything in scale. Like, okay, that's how big this thing is. So if you're dropping a pizza box on this planet, it's literally like crushing Texas. Uh, another thing I, I found fun was uh, I've actually been to Netflix before and seen their offices here in California on Sunset, and I did model the the backgrounds based on what their offices look like. So it, that's that's also really funny to me. I'm just like, yeah, I, I've just been there recently, so I kind of know what their office looks like. Where does this sit in the canon in in your mind? You've you've seen it all from the very beginning. What's what's this season like? Is is it an evolution of other seasons? Is it? Uh, it's Where does, how does it even feel compared to like season three? It's probably the most Harmon season possible. <laughs> Why? Uh, Dan Harmon is fully involved. We have him at the every stage of production now. Like uh, he's in the script phase. He's in the uh, what was going to say. He's in the script phase for sure. He's in the animatic phase. So he's involved in a lot of the early cuts of it. Uh, and like that can usually be pretty good. Sometimes it hurts us. Uh, the 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 one notable exception when Dan comes in and like really fixes something or adds his two cents that makes it better. Season four, then in a nutshell, compared to previous seasons, it's hard. I'm too close to it. There's some real good gems on it, but none of them are the ones I directed. Because again, I'm <laughs> I'm never happy. <laughs> oh, all, right, all right, so season three has some fantastic episodes. I, I've been saying from the get go that Pickle Rick is like one of the greatest episodes of the entire show. Uh, but this one, I'd say consistently the season's better than season three. And again, I'm hard and like, I'm hard on myself. Rick Vindicators is actually my least favorite episode <laughs> and I directed it. So, uh, that's just me personally. So I'm not, I'll, I'll tell you what I, I'll tell you straight. It's that this season is consistently better than season three. Here's Katie Delaney who wrote the episode. It was my first job as a writer, so... Wow. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of us staff writers you'll see on the credits this year. There's, uh, I think, five or six staff writers. What's your background? Walk us into this. Sure. Um, well, I, as far as TV goes, I've been working as an assistant, had been working as an assistant uh, for, like, four-ish years. Um, 
I started working on a Tim Allen sitcom called Last Man Standing. Um, worked on a Showtime show called Kidding, starring Jim Carrey as the same job, a writer's assistant, working in the writer's room. Um, and then f- when I was working on that show, I got hired on Rick and Morty as a writer. From a writer's assistant to a writer. It's a dream. How does that work? Um, you had a spec? Or- yeah. So, yeah, I wrote a pilot. And, uh, you know, first I got agents who helped me shop it around uh-huh. and show it to people. And uh, Mike McMahon here saw my pilot and read it. And uh, I was asked to submit two cold opens that, you know, I wrote uh, for Rick and Morty. Um, my agents called me and told me I got it while I was on my way to work at Kidding. And I just, I like wept and it was a whole like classic thing. Yeah. Like, didn't think I, I would have tears. But, you know, when you've been working at it for a while and Rick and Morty was one of my favorite shows, never ever would consider that I had a shot. You didn't think you were going to get it. You just submitted. No, no. And I, I mean, even being asked to submit threw me for such a loop. I had no idea Did you stress that about- I was like in this world. You know, like you don't think you watch TV and it feels so separate from you. And then all of a sudden you're a part of it. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was crazy. That was like a really cool day. And then I had to show up work crying and then people were like, what's up? <laughs> Why are you crying? And then I had to say, well, I have to leave this job in two days because I start writing on Rick and Morty on Monday. So that was a whole other weepy affair. Wow. How did those writers feel about you getting this writer job? Well, uh, Cody Heller, Dan's fiance, writes on Kidding. Oh. So that was a connection there. So she actually knew about it already. So when I showed up crying and she saw me, she she knew why. Because Dan had told her that I was going to be hired. Um, But I mean, yeah, everyone else was super, everyone was super supportive. Cool. It was great. It it didn't have to be anything, um, any bad vibes at all. It was Was Heist your first script? Yeah. Walk us through that process. You know, like we start talking about it for a while before it becomes one writer's assignment. So we just had like the seed of an idea in the room about, um, you know, what can we parody? We started talking about heist movies and then someone had a pitch that um, Rick would probably only like the parts of heist movies where they put the crew together. Like he thinks that's the only cool part. And then from there it grew to maybe Rick becomes addicted to setting up crew. You know, he, he, only wants to complete a heist so that he can set up the crew. So then he starts inventing heists just to get the perfect crew together for it. And then that kind of spins out of control and he can't make crews fast enough. And um, he builds a crew robot to make all of his crews for him. And then um, when it really sort of took off as a structure for an episode was that uh, this crew robot that is assembling crews for Rick becomes so powerful that it assimilates Rick and Morty into one of his own crews. And they sort of like wake up in a uh, crew cube, which is like this self-sufficient spaceship that's going around and robbing all, which is in the episode now, but in sort of a different way um, is, is heisting all these planets of like all of their natural resources and Rick and Morty have jobs on the cube and Rick's kind of into it. And Morty's the one who has to, sort of remind him that this isn't him and and he created this monster and they have to destroy it. So yeah, that's what I went off with. So you went off and wrote a draft, take a couple weeks? Yeah, I think it took a week. Uh-huh. Yeah. Come back it's with a draft. Standard. Came back with a draft. Anxious to present your first draft. Oh yeah. 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 Um it's very nerve wracking, although we something really nice about the season that I worked on is that 
uh, so many of us were green writers as, you know, six staff or five or six staff writers. And um, we had gotten a lot of practice at showing each other our writing. So, uh, you know, the first couple weeks of being in the room, we threw any idea that we had big or small on the wall. And by the end of the first week, there were like hundreds of ideas, uh, you know, from like Morty wants to buy a chair to like, you know, planet made of jello like really dumb stuff but all (laughs) you know whatever you wanted to pitch would go up on the wall and then that became a list of things that we could then grab from all season long which we did and this process that we went through um to see if ideas had any juice is that we would sort of like drawn from a hat essentially yeah it was a randomized we would get one of these pitches um and be assigned for like an hour or two hours, go write a scene of this idea. And totally based on like a five word pitch, um, I would go off and write Morty gets a vampire girlfriend or whatever. And you can choose to write the cold open of that episode. Any scene that you see of that happening, you can take it anywhere you want. And then we would come back and read those. And if any of them felt like they could be expanded or they were, you know, got everybody laughing, then that's what we would chase. So that was the purpose. Yeah. To see if there was a seed there. Yeah, exactly. And did those turn into episodes? Um, I Yeah, sure. Some of them probably did. Uh, I think uh, Snakes, the um, Rattlestar. Yeah, Rattlestar Rick Rattlestar Rick uh-huh. I believe, came from one of those. I mean, it definitely proved useful. And for me personally as a writer, it's such a treat because being told you have an hour to write a scene takes the pressure off like you can just be goofy and dumb you have an hour to write it everyone knows that everyone had the same amount of time so if you got three pages five pages like that's a feat in itself and everyone was so kind to each other about that because we were all doing it together and this show is so forgiving about you know this isn't like veep (laughs) where i imagine you have to be very precise and like know about the government (laughs) stuff like you this show is just such an open world that um i found myself writing more to like things that i know about that i knew i could be funny about and and still fit them into the world of rick and morty so do you know a lot about the sort of sci-fi realm no and the uh family dynamic right that was more my area like that's when i got hired in the show i was like what are they thinking because I don't know anything about science fiction. Like it's like, obviously I've seen science fiction films and, and I can um, maybe as well as someone else say, wouldn't it be crazy if there was a planet just like earth and everyone did the same thing, but like everything was a little bit different. Like that's a a science fiction idea, but the, the actual, um, I realized when we got into the room that I have seen probably one sixteenth of the amount or fewer of, uh, you know, science fiction films or like, I've never seen an episode of Star Trek. Like there were many missing things like that for me that um, it seems like a lot of the other writers in the room were very easily taught, you know, or like comic book stuff was the main thing actually that I was totally missing. I think it was a good thing in the end that, um, I didn't know anything about this stuff because then you you get to the root of whatever it is that you're pitching because you have to tell it to like a five year old person me, um, and and then that gave me the freedom to be to sort of find my niche in the room and maybe talk more about emotional uh, drives and 
and family stuff more than other people would be. Are there forbidden topics? Are there hacky topics, frequently pitched ideas, things to avoid? We were not encouraged to go back and like find another Meeseeks episode because that's just too too tunnel vision for finding a good episode of the show and probably because there's 70 episodes left of the show it's like you don't want to go back to the well necessarily there is so much more to find and more to create that um you know don't narrow your view by thinking well what do i have to go back and answer and like there's time for all that stuff so i think maybe not that that was forbidden but i think that that wasn't really a priority necessarily to to go back and and then it turns out in my episode like mr poopy butthole comes back um but that wasn't ever like well we gotta find a way for him to come back like people are gonna be wondering like it just sort of naturally happened that way how did mr poopy butthole come back um that was something that came after i wrote that he was not in my draft at all i'll tell you that and then dan's just sort of like genius mind came up with this idea that um, maybe he was in a former crew of Rick's and Rick is, is coming along to get some help from some old friends. Uh, I, I mean, that's just, that's totally him. What, what things stand out? What contributions of yours stand out? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tooting your own horn here. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you're proud of in it? I mean, I think I'm, I would say I'm proud of the sort of general concept of, this episode, which is that uh, Rick and Morty go to a crew convention. If I'm remembering correctly, I think I pitched that they're at a convention, whereas previously it was um, Rick and Morty were just sort of on their own, finding heists and completing the heists. And then when things sort of turned and, and we decided that we wanted Rick to hate heists and all that they stand for, and he wants to take down the system, um, the idea of a convention came up and so that was really exciting to talk through in the room just like what sort of events would be taking place at a heist convention and all that stuff i mean i think it's really fun to to see rick getting crews together and you can sort of i think it's fun for fans to to see these characters we've never seen before and imagine how rick would have met these people and like the dude who works in the volcano i think is so funny because like you can just imagine a whole backstory of like how that guy came to work at a volcano. Like what a tough life. Um, all that stuff, those characters I think feel whole enough that you can sort of think about them more in your own time. If that makes sense. Elon Tusk. Elon Tusk is hilarious. Who does that voice? Is it Elon Musk? I was, I was wondering ask. if it is. I was going to yeah, ask I you. Know. <laughs> I don't know. I think either. it is. I think they seem like have. it would be. Yeah. I mean, he loves the show. So I think they got, I think the last time I had seen it, it was just like a scratch. Yeah. I, I think it was just Dan doing it. But then, yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, that's not Dan. I think that's Elon Musk. Ventriloquiver. Ventriloquiver is the coolest. She's my favorite character. I mean, that's just such a brilliant thing that Dan came up with probably in like 30 seconds in his brain uh, and, and put it down. And it's so cool. You shoot a quiver and then her voice comes out of your mouth miles knightley uh miles knightley was really fun to that was like something that we discussed a lot in the room uh, um first of all coming up with his name you know he's danny ocean so we were like what sounds like danny ocean right. that isn't danny ocean so we went through a lot a lot a lot of those and then miles knightley sort of came out on top but um so awesome that justin throw did the voice for that how do you deal with do you write the profanity in lots of fucks in this episode 
Yeah, the, I mean, the cool thing about writing the show is that you can kind of let the fucks fly. Yeah. And the way that I write is that I definitely, I don't know, I use a lot of F words in my life, I guess. And yeah, being aware that Rick does all this. Yeah, you can just go for it and then deal with it later, I guess. Is there an evolution of the show, of the of the of these characters from the early seasons that you see? Or that you were instructed to see, maybe? I don't think we were really instructed to... You know, we didn't come in day one with like, so by the end of the season, Beth is going to be, you know, like it, it was just like, let the ideas fly sort of thing. And then you find that, the, you know, you talk a lot about character motivations. And I think Morty more than Rick. I think Rick is an old dude who is set in his ways pretty much. I mean, all, people can always evolve, but I think we were more in terms of evolving characters talking about Morty and um, just becoming more confident and knowing who he is and being able to challenge Rick. I think that's. Not something that we intended to hit on the head necessarily, but something that came in more and more in discussions that, I don't know, maybe we'll be, hmm. we'll see when the episode's air, but... Morty's agency. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Have you been to Comic-Con? I have not. Oh. Now it'll probably have new meaning to you. Yeah. Oh, with, with HeistCon and everything. Right. I know I should have gone to Comic-Con as uh, research, but it, the timing didn't work up. No, I would love to, well, I don't know. That's actually a stretch. I don't know if I'd love to go to Comic-Con. It's sort of not my vibe just no. because I um, have an aversion to lots of people. But uh, it would be cool to go sometime. Well, congratulations on uh, this. has got to be a huge milestone for your career. It really is. It, it really it, I mean, the show has given me uh, everything that I have now. I'm so grateful to have worked on it. And it, it honestly feels insane. Even though I worked here for many months and, and we're here now and the episode is airing, it feels crazy to say that there's an episode of Rick and Morty with my name on it. Elisa Phillips is a character designer. So one of the standout characters I designed was Angie Flint. I always want to say Lauren, Laura Dern because that's who we based her on. Uh-huh. So they started with kind of a vague description of what she was. They're like, yeah, she's outdoorsy. She's like, she's strong. She's burly. And so I was thinking, okay, like, a, you know, like a dwarf or something or like someone stout and strong. Like I, I was kind of thinking like a World of Warcraft dwarf or we'll say an MMO type character dwarf. Um, but then they, the first pass, it was like, no, we want something a little more like Laura Croft. So I did a bunch of kind of Laura Croft alternate designs. And then they're like, well, no, no, like Laura Dern. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> now that's very specific. So we kept getting more honed in. So then that one was like just three kind of caricatures of her. Um, but at least at that point, I already knew what kind of body type they liked and what kind of stature. So it was a lot easier to kind of hone it in at that point. So, and she, again, she's not a very big character but yeah. she has a name and she seems really important when you meet her so that's the kind of stuff we'll usually get is kind of like a it's a throwaway character but it comes with a lot of importance when they show up um i did kind of like a like a butler type alien that had kind of some butler elements integrated into his design he was also kind of like a slug and he was pushing a cart that had an alien like hiding in the cart um but then it turns out when we design all these fun gags as characters they get kind of lost like uh, they're like, okay, well, we can only have one character on the lineup. So then by the time it gets through the process, you know, no more cart, no more hiding alien. Now it's just the first design. Um, I had an alien that was, he was like a hacker type, like a nerd. So he had three arms, one arm coming out of his chest, holding a laptop and the other two arms in normal place, just typing on the laptop. And then I had to put them all the arms straight down for the model. So did that. And then our director sees it and says, uh, 
let's just nix this middle arm. And then I'm like, well, that's that was the joke, but okay. <laughs> you can't take it personally, so, I guess. No, it, it's just that, you know, we're not we're not really the writers. We just kind of get in funny things where we can. Sometimes it's like lost in the process, but but you know, it's it's just like you see what you can get in. Um, not everything makes it. This isn't really the pipeline, like the way that those things get in anyway. It would be more if it was in the board phase that that kind of stuff would get in because it would have to be in the acting. So we were trying to just try to inspire the board artists to maybe integrate that when they see it. So the Um, character design comes before the storyboard? Occasionally, if it's uh, main characters, they do. Background characters can be a lot more, like they can kind of just use generic reuse aliens to populate a scene, and then we can kind of design a few more new ones. Um, Otherwise, it would just be too many like specific designs to place initially. Um, so they, they call out like, we need this many incidental aliens, like background aliens, but they really, for the important characters, like the ones with names, the ones that act, those are the ones that they, we have to focus on before writing, before boards. I think it'll just be, it'll be great to see a whole, uh, like a whole space populated by like all of our dumb ideas kind of floating around. Um, one specific design that's pretty featured on the heist episode is when they're walking into the convention and there's this kind of spider looking dude with he's hanging from a string and he's making holes in the glass and he's uh he's like right up in the camera and then you see Rick and Morty walking in the distance. So that's one of my designs. Um he has some interesting color choices also that people might enjoy. Um I don't take credit for that because I only did the design, but he's a really fun character. Corey Booth is a color designer. Heist is a funny one. Um, just when you think you got it figured out, it heists you, and you right. don't know what's going on. Uh, Miles Knightley, the Freddie Mercury-inspired uh, villain, right? He was fun to paint. Uh, you know, stuff like that is fun because there's all those references. Like I- I'm into music, like '60s, '70s rock and roll, blues, and I try to like let that sometimes inspire me. So. When I get characters like the Freddie Mercury-looking guy, you know, I see how much I can push that and uh, carry that into the actual, actual reference. Yeah, he, he, it's kind of like the George Clooney from the Ocean's Eleven right. stuff, but mixed with like Freddie Mercury's costume. So he's kind of like a blue vampire guy. But what's fun too is like he gets ripped apart, and so some of like our input is like. I thought it'd be funny if he had gold bones just because he's, you know, some super highfalutin guy and he gets ripped apart. And it's just a visual gag, but it's stuff that I get to sneak my personality in and do stuff like that. Um, and they're small little things, but it's, it keeps the job fun. The Horowitz skull. The Horowitz skull. That would be the crystal skull that yeah. is heisted. Yeah, that's, um, that is a fun scene. Lots, where... of, lots of one-off characters in here. Glar. Yeah, lots of, well, you're, exactly, and that's another thing that's going to be fun to see people cosplay is because there's so many characters in all these episodes that, you know, are background characters or main characters, and it's... Uh, all, and, <laughs> Andrew Flint, Trucula. Trucula, yeah, Trucula's yeah. good. Um, the microwave guy who's built with two, Heatwave, I think his name was. He's just two microwaves stacked on top of each other. Um, Hephaestus. Hephaestus is good. Heistatron, Randatron. Yeah, Prince Elon, Elon Tusk. Elon Tusk. Yeah, that was a fun one. And originally, uh, we didn't know if it was going to be Elon doing the voice or not. And uh, sure enough, an animatic showed up with his voice in there. Yeah, it's pretty fun. That's I painted cool. that guy. He did. Yeah. Your supervising director, Wes Archer. 
It's it's one of the more ambitious episodes, actually, uh, visually. Um, Miles Knightley was a great character who dies early. <laughs> yes. And then it just, it just exponentially takes off from, from there. Um, it was a lot of fun doing the split screen effects and, uh, and all of the, uh, wacky characters in that one. A lot of characters that make brief appearances then gone forever. Yeah. It, 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 what pops into my head also is standards and practices where whereby the network will red flag humans who have brain splatter or intestinal um, uh, just you know entrails or uh, skull fragments things of that nature. Uh, we can't really do that, but if it's an alien, we can. And Miles Knightley was very human-like, but he's an alien, and his bones are gold, and he bleeds a weird color blood. So we could do all that stuff. You just changed the color of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ryan Elder is the show's music composer. The process for season four has been slightly different. Um, I'm still using the same sort of. Uh, palette, sound palette I've used for the show over the first three seasons. But there's a couple episodes, in particular, the heist episode stands out as having almost a completely new genre specific style of music. Uh, in the heist episode, I had to create kind of a um, kind of a uh, Ocean's Eleven sort of a vibe, a little more upbeat and techno-y than what they use. But um, just to sort of really sell that sort of genre heist film thing that we were going for in that episode, very different sound than the rest of the episodes uh, in seasons one through three and, and any episode in season four as well. What are some of the specifics that you mean when you try to match that sort of um, sound environment? Absolutely. Uh, it's very funk inspired. So it's usually really up tempo funk. It's usually sampled drum loops like, um, break beats uh a lot of times those songs sample drum loops from old funk records uh drum breaks from their from certain songs where it's just the drums playing and they'll speed them up and turn them into these like funky up-tempo kind of electronica grooves uh they're the bass there's it's very bass heavy lots of um almost like a spy feel you know like we're on a little spy adventure kind of a little mysterious and then lots of big bold brassy horn section stabs kind of a thing um and that that that's just like kind of a basic description of the kind of music that you would find in a heist film and so i had to sort of capture that but put the sort of rick and morty spin on it how do you build those do you build them by yourself first uh, yeah, everything that I do for almost everything I do for the show is what uh, we call in the box. It's all in samplers in my computer. I don't usually use a lot of live players. I do. I'll play guitar and I'll play bass. And I did that for this heist episode. Uh, but like a lot of the stuff is just um, programmed electronic drums and synthesizers. And then I have a sampled horn section that I'll use to kind of 
create that. And what's cool about the heist music is that those horns don't need to sound like a real, uh, a real funk horn section. They can be manipulated and mixed and mastered. And there's a lot of like record scratchy style, uh, studio techniques you can do to make it sound more authentic to that style. And all of that is like in the computer, in the box, as we say. So, yeah. Did you watch these movies and, and study them presumably? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of, you know, the oceans, the ocean scores are all done by this composer, David Holmes, who's kind of like, he's really set the tone for these types of movies. And now everybody kind of does that (laughs) for these sort of heist movies. It's kind of the sound. Um, and it's, and his stuff is very heavily based on old seventies funk records and, uh, funk scores for movies. So yeah, you got to watch that. Uh, you, in order to hit, in order to nail a genre, you definitely got to watch it. So I did watch a couple of, at least some scenes on YouTube, you know. <laughs> Tommy Scott is a background designer. The heist, that was my favorite episode to work on. That was? Why is that? Because I was given, this is weird, but I was given the opportunity to pretty much build out the entire convention center. Wow. And so I got to play architect. Um, Heistatron is uh, probably my favorite episode because of a few of the physical jokes of Heistatron literally heisting a planet and being both intelligent enough and stupid to assume nobody can see this massive robot heisting an entire planet and trying to pretend that he's a pizza delivery guy might be one of my favorite gags we've ever done. But the whole thing about the, I had a little extra time to work on the convention and after Robbie designed the exterior, I went all in on the interior, designed a map for it, how it would all work out using like pieces of like the LA convention center and other convention centers throughout the world as physical reference for how these things are laid out. And I made it to where all the rooms technically connect to each other. Even if the people who are watching at home don't know that I put that kind of detail into there for my own sake. And for if anyone ever gets to notice it, be like, Hey, this all actually works like a real convention center. Hey, do you also like robot chicken or Aqua Teen Hunger Force or Squidbillies or Space Goes Coast to Coast or Tim and Eric or Black Jesus or Too Many Cooks? What about Metalocalypse? The Adult Swim podcast offers deep dive conversations with the creators, cast, and crew behind all the Adult Swim shows you love, hate, or feel indifferent about. We ask a lot of questions, some of them good, and we take requests. Subscribe to the Adult Swim podcast in your podcast app, and you'll get very personal with a lot of interesting people behind some of your favorite Adult Swim shows. Send your requests, comments, or criticisms to adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Dave Bonowitz for editing this and to Christina Loringer for her help. Thanks to Brian, Katie, Elisa, Corey, Wes, Tommy, and Ryan for chatting with me. And special thanks to Steve Levy for wrangling all these folks. And thank you for listening.